We're studying one of the most profound books ever written. In fact, it's been called that by many Bible scholars since the second century. The most profound book ever written. And we've learned that it divides itself nicely into three sections. Chapters 1 through 8, he discusses his thesis that only in the gospel are men saved, Jew and Greek. And from all time are men saved through the gospel. We emphasize these first eight chapters because they are the essence to the book of Romans. Chapters 9 through 11, are, that's a discussion of Israel's statement that God had rejected her in order to bring in the church. Paul will show them that she wasn't rejected, but that they rejected God's plan. In fact, all of their prophets had told them about this plan. They just didn't listen. In chapter 7 of Romans, I want to concentrate a little bit on that today, chapter 7 and 8. In chapter 7 of Romans, he has an interesting discussion about a Jew living under the law of Moses and what it must have been like if you really understood that you were not being justified by that system. Paul calls it a wretched situation. If you're there in Romans 7, notice that he says he's writing to those who know, and the King James has the law, and the Greek has law. If we know how law operates, and his illustration is the law of a husband and, his, and uh, the wife, he says, if you know how law operates, then verse 4 becomes important to you. Wherefore, my brethren, you become dead to the law. I want to insist this morning that the law of Moses did not die. We become dead to it. The law of Moses was fulfilled or nailed to the cross by the Christ, Colossians 2.14. Brother Young, uh, a son-in-law of Brother Gus Nichols, who was one of my, Brother Young was one of my teachers. In fact, he married Brother Nichols' oldest daughter, Gracie, who's still living. She lives in Pulaski, Tennessee. But Brother Young used to liken the law to the bud of a rose. Good illustration. And when the bud became the rose, it was fulfilled. Well, the law of Moses was fulfilled by the Christ. You remember he said, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And so we think about the law of Moses not dying, but being fulfilled. The very purpose of it was to bring us to the Christ. The law was our schoolmaster to do what? Bring us to Christ, Galatians 3.25. But I have to become dead to the law. I have to understand that I am not under the law of Moses. That's an important point. Mother, brethren, you become dead to the law by the body of Christ. He died on the cross so that you could become dead to the law. That you might be married to another. You know, people who try to hold to the Ten Commandments and the Christ have two living spiritual mates. They're practicing spiritual adultery, literally. Even to him who is raised from the dead, we should bring forth fruit unto God. Now watch what he says in verse 5. For when we were in the flesh... And I commented to you the other day that that means when he lived under the law of Moses. And that's how he uses the word flesh in this text and in chapter 8. His time under the law of Moses, when he knew about sin, the passions of sins which were pointed out or which were by the law, the law told him these things were wrong. Don't covet your neighbor's wife and so on. He knew those things were wrong. The law said so did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death, but there was a problem caused for him living under the law. I do not know whether every Jew ever understood this problem. I have no idea whether every Jew ever understood about forgiveness or justification. 
He just knew that he should bring his animal, and the priest would tell him what to do with it, and so on. But Paul knows now by inspiration what it was like living under the law of Moses. He says, but now we are delivered from the law, that, that law, being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit. Now notice how he uses the word spirit, that's the New Testament system. Not in the oldness of the letter, that's the law of Moses. He uses this kind of language in 2 Corinthians 3, for instance. Now what's your conclusion about the law of Moses then, Paul? What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Meganeta. Not in any way. There's no way that the law is sin. For I had not known sin, but by the law. Now notice what he quotes here. He quotes one of the Ten Commandments. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. So Paul says, I'm dead to that system. Why do we need to be dead to that system, Paul? Because it didn't justify. It wasn't designed to justify. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law, sin was dead. No law, no sin. But there came a time in Paul's life when he realized that he had sinned. He came to the age of accountability. Watch what he says in the next verse. For I was alive outside of the law once. That's when he was a young person, not accountable to God for his sin. We have a teaching in, the, in Christendom that says that babies are born in sin. Innocent little babies. When my grandson was lying in the hospital 17 years ago, dying, a female chaplain came by and wanted to pray for him that he might be saved. You have to understand my mindset at the time and the grief that was going on in our family, but I said to her, I sometimes wish I hadn't said it, but I said to her, I don't believe your prayer is going to be heard. That shocked her. I said the truth. I don't know if it helped her any. But that is the truth. A baby has no sin. Paul says, I was alive outside of the law once. That's when he was a young person. He was not accountable. When a baby dies, it goes straight to paradise. I think we say that they're safe, don't we? They're safe. In fact, Jesus said, except you be converted and become as a little child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, 3. Imagine if a child is a sinner, he said then, except you become a sinner, you can't enter the kingdom. You heard about the little girl that said to the preacher, or the preacher said to the little girl, he said, Donald, what must you do to be saved? And she looked at him and she said, first I've got to sin. So Paul was alive without the law ones. But when the commandment came, when he understood that he was subject to that commandment, sin revived and I died. It's amazing to me that the New Testament commands put us into Christ where we are made alive. But the Old Testament commands just said to you, you're a sinner. It would almost be like brethren coming to services every Sunday and having Bob say to you, you're still sinners, see you next week. Wouldn't you love that? Isn't that a great system? Well, how do I achieve justification? Paul says, the commandment which was ordained to life I found to be unto death. He said, I don't have a way to overcome sin through this Old Testament system. And then he goes into this problem in depth as how it affected him. 
It affected him in such a way that the thing he wanted to do, he couldn't do. He wanted to be justified. Verse 15 and verse 16, and he repeats it again there in verse uh, 14, or uh, verse uh, 13. But he doesn't blame the law. He understands it's man's problem because the law is holy, the commandment's holy, just, and good. It's interesting that God's commandments under the Old Testament system did not justify. That is, they did not satisfy God's holiness and justice. And we read that the other day, that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to what? Take away sin. But do we have a victory? Is there a way now that when we're forgiven, we're in fact forgiven and not standing condemned before God? Is there a way? Look at the New Testament beginning now in Romans 8.1. What would you say, Keith? I said, look at the New Testament beginning right here. Therefore, here's his conclusion, there is now no condemnation. Boy, I love that. To whom? Those who are in Christ Jesus. How do you get into Christ, brethren? You're baptized, aren't you? Galatians 3, 26 and 27. So if you're in Christ, you don't walk after the law of Moses, the flesh. You don't use that system. You walk after the Spirit. That is, the commands of the Holy Spirit. There's a big uh, issue in this country from time to time about the Ten Commandments appearing in our courtrooms and school buildings. And I really don't see that as an issue for a Christian. I'm not under the Ten Commandments. It might be an issue from this standpoint that it sort of uh, gives us an indication of how secular our society is that they don't care about God at all. But you and I aren't under that system. There are only two types of people in the world today, Christians and the lost. And the Christian lives without condemnation. You are actually forgiven, not in prospect, as Abraham was, but actually forgiven because the blood of Christ can now cover you. He died on a cross 2,000 years ago. We're looking back at it. And so we don't walk after the law of Moses. For the law, now notice how the Holy Spirit directs us and how he affects us and how he enables us. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, that's how he does it. Somebody read Ephesians six seventeen, please. Take the helm of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. To argue that the Holy Spirit operates on me directly without anything intervening is the same thing as saying you could plant a garden without seed. You have to have a seed implanted in the heart, and the Holy Spirit activates that seed. Luke 8, 11, the seed is the Word of God, all right? For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now, if there were no other passages here, I'd think that the law of sin and death was the law of Moses, but it isn't. The law of sin and death is described for us in Romans 6.23. Someone please. Here's the law of sin and death. The wages of sin is death. All right, that's the law of sin and death. You sin, you die. That's what Adam and Eve were told. You sin, you die. Somebody took their place, however. But this law of the Spirit hath made me free from the law of sin and death for what the law, the law of Moses, could not do. What the law of Moses could not do was make me free from the law of sin and death. 
He's already told us that in chapter 7. And so I'm grateful that understanding in, uh, the New Testament system, I'm grateful I don't live under that old system. It'd be frustrating, wouldn't it? Never to be actually justified or made righteous before God. But the law did it. How was the law weak? Because of man. Nothing wrong with the law of Moses. It did exactly what God intended it to do. It was holy and just and good, but there was no provision in it for the justification of man. Man needed justification from God, and man needed a perfect sacrifice to take his place. And so it is that there are some benefits that come to us from being in Christ. And notice in verse 4 that the righteousness required by the law of Moses is actually fulfilled in us when we become Christians, who walk not after the law of Moses, but after the Holy Spirit's commandments. Notice how he uses the word flesh there again, same context as verse 1, same context as verse 5 of chapter 7, and so on. Not the body, not the carnal desire, but walking after the law of Moses. You'd be minding the things of the law of Moses, and so on. And he calls it carnal-mindedness in verses 6 and 7, to try to walk after the Ten Commandments. I want us to notice in chapter 8 now some of the great blessings that come from being in Christ. But before we do that, the Apostle Paul had such a great desire for every Jew to be saved that in this letter to the Roman church, he actually said that he could wish himself in hell if it would save them. He wanted them saved. And you might wonder why he's spending so much time discussing the law of Moses and walking after the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus and righteousness and all of these things. And I seem to be getting bogged down in all that, but his, the intent was to the Jew first. God did everything he could to try to get these people to obey the gospel. Some did. Most did not. In fact, if you'll look at Hebrews 6 with me for just a moment. Some of the early Christians who were formerly Jews, but they were being persecuted, were making a decision to go back under the law of Moses. And the Hebrews epistle is written to try to persuade them not to do that. That's why it's called Hebrews. It's written to Christians who were formerly Hebrews or Jews. In fact, look at verse 12 of chapter 5. For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the what? What's your Bible say? Now, the oracles of God, brethren, are the Old Testament principles. It's, that is never used of New Testament principles, that phrase, oracles of God. In Romans 3, 2, Paul answers the question that the Jews had. Uh, well, if, if the Jew and the Gentile are going to be saved in the same way, Paul, what advantage did the Jew have? He said, much in every way, chiefly that under them were committed the oracles of God. They had the written oracles. That's an advantage. And they had the care of them. Preachers are told and teachers are told, if any man speak, let him speak as the what? 
oracles of God. You are to teach the way an Old Testament prophet would, with that great sincerity and great holiness and so on. It's the way we're to speak and minister. Well, the oracles of God weren't even known, evidently, by some of these Hebrews, and he chastises them for that. But now that they are Christians, he tells them in chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto completeness, not laying again those Old Testament oracles. Can't lay that again. The foundation of repentance from dead works and the faith toward God. The doctrine of your King James has baptisms. It's the Greek word for washings. Many washings under the Old Testament system. Laying on of hands, Old Testament system. He said, you can't lay that again. And of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permit. For it is impossible... For those who were once enlightened, tasted of the heavenly gift, were made partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the world to come. Brethren, that's not about heaven. That's the way the Jews spoke of the Messianic age. He said, you have tasted of the Messianic age. You have tasted the word of God. You've been enlightened by the Holy Spirit. Are you going to go back under the Jewish system? Are you going to fall away and go back there under Judaism and offer an animal again? then it's impossible to renew you to repentance under that system. Don't go back there. There is no salvation back there. This reminds me of those who leave the church for a denomination. There's no repentance there. There's no way to have them saved. In fact, they'd have to have a new son of God if they went back to the Old Testament system. Look what he says at the end of that verse 6. Seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. There's no Son of God back there. He's in the New Testament system. I'll tell you, the first time I read verse 6 and didn't understand the context, I, it scared me to death. Because I thought it said that if I sinned as a Christian, I couldn't repent. <laughs> well, that's not possible. That would contradict 1 John 1 9. But then I began to see that he was saying, you go back under Judaism, you don't have a Son of God. You'd have to have a new one and put him, and what do you do to the one who actually died? Put him to an open shame. The same thing is said in Hebrews 10, if you'll we'll go over there with me for a moment. Same thing is said over here in Hebrews 10. He said, don't you turn your backs on the churches of Christ. Verse 25. But as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. If that day is Sunday... We don't practice this verse because it says exhorting one another and so much the more as you see Sunday approaching. So on Monday, I will exhort you one time. On Tuesday, I will exhort you two times. On Wednesday, I will exhort you three times. So much the more as you see the day approaching. On Thursday, four times. On Friday, five times. And on Saturday, six times. We don't practice that because that's not what the verse says. The day here is the day called AD 70 when the city of Jerusalem fell. He said, you're going to see it approaching. And, Paul, and uh, Jesus warned them to watch for the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel. But if you turn your back on the church of Christ, where are you going to look for repentance? He calls that willful sin, verse 26. And he says, there's no more sacrifice for sin under the Old Testament system. It doesn't exist. So why would you want to go back? Why would anyone leave the church of Christ when every blessing God has to offer is in the church because it's in Christ. Go back with me now to Romans 8. And as we read about these blessings, 
Think about these people who would opt to go back to some other uh, system or some other religion. What a terrible thought that is. Because in Christ, brethren, look at verse 14 of chapter 8. We are the sons of God. How many sons of God are there? How many daughters of God? Oh, he's holding up one finger. I'm saying there's a whole bunch of them. There's the Son of God, but there are all kinds of sons of God. Everybody in this room is a son of God. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. He's your brother also. We're not only a son, he's in our family, isn't he? Hebrews chapter 2. So we are the sons of God. How did we become sons? Well, we are adopted sons. Look at verse 15. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. I've often wondered what it must be like for a child who understands that he has no parents, sitting in an orphanage somewhere, all alone, and no one ever comes by to take him home. That's got to be sad, frightening, lonely. But you and I were adopted into God's family. I've heard adoptive parents tell their children, we didn't have you, we wanted you. We wanted you. God wanted us, and he adopted us. How many of you know how adoption worked under the Roman system? How did they go about adopting a child? They purchased it. They just went and bought it. Are you purchased? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You are the purchased possession of God. Yes, sir. You have been adopted, and you can cry now in the most intimate way, Abba, Father. Father, Father. And how do I know I'm a son of God? Verse 16. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. Holy Spirit doesn't talk to me. He bears witness with me. That is, when I study his word and lay my life down alongside what he said, his spirit, the words that he's given me, bear witness with my spirit that I am a child of God. I can read the scriptures and know whether or not I'm a child of God. It's that simple. And isn't that a wonderful blessing? So first of all, to be in Christ is to be his son. But it's also to be an heir. And if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. What would you say, Paul? Joint. What's a joint heir? What do you inherit a joint? Co-heir. So if Christ got something, do I get it? If Christ got something when he went back to heaven, I get the same thing? Is that what you're saying, Brother Lewis? Yes, sir. I agree. Look over there in Revelation with me for a moment as he talks to the churches of Asia. Well, I lost the verse. First mistake I've ever made in my life. Chapter 3, verse 21. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. Did you ever realize that great promise? 
to sit right where Jesus is sitting. We are joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him that we may be also glorified together. Colossians makes that so clear about the glory that Christ had. Read it for you us. You and I, we, we're going to have that. We're going to have the same glory. Go ahead. Read it for us. Uh, I've lost my place. Oh. But he talks about the glory that's in Christ becomes our glory. I lost a thought there. What was it? I just had a senior moment. Come on, help me out, Bob. What was my thought? I don't know either. Now what am I going to do? Anyways, we are joint. Oh, I know what I was talking about. On one occasion, Jesus said to his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Many, many denominational scholars have diluted that statement so much that even my own brethren sometimes buy into their exegesis of that verse in Matthew 16. It's taught something like this, that the cross is the burden you bear for the Lord. I think, I think some of our songs teach that. That this cross I'm bearing for the Lord. Let me ask us a question. For what was a cross used in the first century? Capital death. Death, capital punishment. Let's see if we can exegete that verse in Matthew 16 there uh, this way. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. First of all, denying himself is revolutionary in that age. The Greek philosophers were teaching know yourself. In fact, from Marcus Aurelius on through Plato, that's what they were being taught. Know yourself. Jesus said, deny yourself. Now, Paul will tell the Colossian brethren, Colossians 3, 3, that they are dead and their life is hid with God in Christ. When did they die? If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his electric chair, his hangman's noose, his lethal injection, you don't carry a cross past Golgotha, folks. There has to be a time when you died. When Paul comes to the conclusion of the doctrinal section of the Roman letter, he will say, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living offering. Like the animals were a dead offering, we become a living offering. Holy, H-O-L-Y, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That's your logical service. That since God did all of this for us, we need to die to ourselves. When a person says things like, I want, I need, I, 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 he's got a disease that no ophthalmologist can cure. But repentance could. I'm a dead man, folks. I am a dead man. I stopped being whatever Keith was in 1964. I belong to him. Whatever he tells me to do, I'm going to do it. Whatever I ever am, it's his. Whatever I ever earn, it's his. Brother Lewis, could I see your car keys for a moment? Yes, sir. I got him. <laughs> 
Those aren't yours. Those belong to the Lord. I want to see yours. Can I see your wallet? No, yeah, I can't. It belongs to the Lord. The fellow that lived in the house I now live in probably stood in the front yard and talked about his house. It wasn't his, and it's not his now. If so be that we suffer with him, we'll be glorified together. Did you give it all to the Lord yet? Have you ever been down on your knees and tell the Lord that? I'm going to talk about that tomorrow night. What I am is yours. What I have is yours. You have to give it to him. You have to take up your cross. You have to put yourself to death. Yes, go ahead. There's a famous quotation by Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. When Christ calls a man, he calls him to die. You know, I'm preaching about him at the Power Lectures this year, the, his approach to exegesis and so on. Brother Bob said there's a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when a man calls, when a man call, when a, Christ calls a man, he calls him to die. I reckon now we are his sons and we are heirs if we have died with him. Now, what about the sufferings of this present time? Well, there's a heavenly harvest that awaits. Watch what he says. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the catesis, the creature, waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. It waits for the second coming. Something he calls the creature waits for the second coming. This creature was made subject to vanity. It dies. Not willingly. Nobody wants to die. But by reason of him, God, who subjected the creature in hope. The creature has a hope. Because the creature itself shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. He said, in fact, if you look at the whole creation, you know that it wants this thing called resurrection. In this part of the world, I don't see it quite as clearly as I did up north, but when you see the springtime, you see resurrection up north. I mean, it goes from white to green. And then in the fall, we go back to all those colors fading away, but then there's a rebirth in the spring again. He says the whole creation should teach you that, but there's something called the creature that longs for that time when there's a resurrection. Well, he tells us what it is in verse 23. And not only they, all the sons of God, but ourselves also. Even the apostles had this great hope. The, who, these apostles who had the miraculous first fruits of the Holy Spirit, even they groaned within themselves, waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Our body will be resurrected. Next time you go to a gravesite, just remember, it's coming open one day. It, it, we don't leave grandmother there. She went somewhere, and that she that went somewhere, that son of God that went to paradise, is waiting for the reuniting of that body coming out of the grave, changed so they can go to heaven. Paul says that's our blessing. There's a heavenly hope. Not only does our spirit is our spirit eternal, but our body itself will be resurrected and changed, or changed as it's resurrected. And so we have a heavenly harvest one day when all the graves will be opened and the body itself will be made known in the manifestation of the sons of God. That's all in Christ, folks. His sons, heirs, heavenly harvest, and hope. We're saved by hope. 
Sometimes when I preach a funeral, I use 1 Corinthians 13, 3. Now abideth these three, faith, hope, agape, and the greatest of these is agape. How does one come to the end of his life without faith? How does one come to the end of his life without agape? And how does one come to the end of his life without hope? I don't know how you do it. So we have hope. We have help by the Holy Spirit. Verses 26 and 27. We have great help here in our prayers. When we have a prayer and we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit helps us here. How is that possible? Do I have something I can use to... When you speak about the will of God, you have to speak about three wills. You have to speak about his final will. Revelation 21, 10 through 12, for instance, where it cannot be changed. Once a, man's di once a man dies, that will not be changed. God has a final will, and it won't change. You have to speak about God's revealed will. That will not change. That's the Bible. It's the same today, yesterday, and forever. It's not going to change. It's there. But what about the circumstances of life? What do I pray in the circumstances of life? Those infirmities. What do you pray? We ask God to heal someone by divine providence. Suppose the person is not healed. Did we pray the wrong prayer? No. Thy will be done. But in this passage, watch what he says. The Holy Spirit helps our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought in those infirmities. Now, there are a lot of things for which I should pray, and I know how to pray for them. And I know what not to pray because the revealed will teaches me that. The revealed will says, don't pray for a man to be saved through prayer. I, that's not going to happen. So I don't pray that prayer. So I know what to pray in those areas. I know how to pray according to Matthew chapter 6 and so on. But when the circumstances of life come about, what do I pray? I was driving down to the hospital one night when my grandson was dying, and I just pulled over to the side of the road in my pickup. And I said, Father, he's suffered enough. Enough. I wish you'd take him. But I know God doesn't take people. Not in the sense of killing them. But I said that. Did I sin? Not according to this passage. I didn't know what to pray in that trauma of life. But I had help. I get an explanation here from the Holy Spirit who makes intercession for me. He's in heaven now. 